Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Have you ever wondered what is going on in the mind of the angry person? Now, I'm not talking about you. I don't want to get personal, but we want to talk about those people out there who get angry. I'm reminded at this point of what one of our mastermind graduates, Jeff Mears, said. He said, Rick, your content just pokes you in the chest. We can be a little bit pokey, and I hope this is not too pokey for you. But I do want to talk about a common problem that all of us have, and that is with anger. It is our most common and problematic enemy, and it can set up camp in our hearts. And if practiced often, it can become a habit that destroys our minds and our relationships. And I do mean our minds, too, because anger is more than a behavior. It's a heart condition, first of all. And so if you want to get rid of it, you must understand its exact cause. We will begin to take down the behavior as we address the source practically. It kind of reminds me of what James says, what causes quarrels and what causes conflict. He's asking a causal question, a source question, and that's what I want to deal with here in this article that I've written for you, and I would love for you to read it and share it with 1,000 of your friends because it applies to every single one. One of them, including you and including me. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas, and we are doing Life Over Coffee. The title of that article is Diagramming the Heart of the Angry Person. I would love for you to find it at lifeovercoffee.com. Read it. There's a podcast there. There is a video. By the way, I also have two infographics inside that article, and so you'll have to go there to take advantage of them. I'll talk a little bit about those infographics here, uh, but again, reading the article would be to your benefit. Anger is one of our most accepted behavioral sin habits, and that is a subtle deception that makes it probably the most dangerous aspect of anger. I mean, if everybody is doing it, then it's not a big deal. How easy it is, is it to rationalize our anger? I mean, we see it on social media all the time. People say some of the angriest things. By the way, I'm talking about our people. I'm talking about Christians. I mean, it's obvious if you go out to the dumpster fire, which is also called Twitter, well, you will see anger completely unmasked in some of the most horrendous iterations that you would ever find. But I'm talking about the subtle forms of anger that we Christians do, and we, we do it so easily. And again, uh, you can see it just with a, a brief perusal of social media. And the sad thing about not recognizing our sinful anger as a sin issue is that we can't repent of something that we accept. We can't repent of something that we ignore or we blame or do not perceive. Perhaps the most common mistake that we make when thinking about sinful anger is its subtleness. You see, the word anger conjures up big things like road rage. Some of you old enough to remember Bobby Knight. He was the coach of the Indiana basketball team. There's a video of him throwing a chair across a gymnasium floor, and I think volatile anger is what comes to mind most of the time when you talk about it. And now there's no question that volatile anger is indeed a problem. 
we're all familiar with road rage. And then, of course, there is hate speech, and then there is that dumpster fire that we can look at, also called Twitter. But anger is much more than these more volatile forms of it. There is a more refined side of this hideous sin. And I'm not suggesting that they are the same consequentially. No, if you get hit with a hammer or someone's throwing a chair across the floor or someone is yelling at you in road rage, obviously that's different consequentially. But what I'm saying here is not I'm not making the consequential argument. There's another place to make it. And it is important to make it. But I'm talking about the ubiquitous nature of anger. It's more, it's more subtle than overt. And that is a danger if you're trying to overcome anger. More people participate in these milder forms, uh, making anger more destructive in everyday relationships. Let me illustrate one of these milder, milder forms so that you can understand what I'm, what I'm saying. A number of years ago, our daughter uh, was walking across the living room away from her mother while responding to her mother. Now, her response was a low-grade huff under her breath. Now, I'll be honest with you. Those are one of those moments that you want to rejoice because this is an opportunity. Uh, when your children are young, and she was really young, three or four years of age, and, and she's getting outside the window by that time of learning obedience, you want to start teaching obedience at, at seven, eight, nine months, and then uh, by the time they're two and three years old, the window is closing. And so when it does happen, and she was three or four years of age, yeah, I was kind of rejoicing because it was an opportunity to make an appropriate scene, something memorable for her because, as Barney Fife would say and Andy Griffith, you want to nip it at the bud. And so I stopped her in her tracks. I inquired about her sinful anger while offering her an opportunity to repent of her sin, from her sin, repent to God and repent to my wife. Now, she did, thankfully. James has a profound descriptor of what she did. He called it murder. Now, most people would see it as huffing under the breath, and it's like, what's the big deal, Rick? Well, here's the big deal. She's going to grow up, and she did. She's going to become an adult, and she is. And she will eventually marry. And that huffing under the breath as a three-year-old is not a static, episodic moment, but it is a fluid reality in her soul. And as she becomes older and more demonstrative in her actions and attitudes, well, that huffing under the breath is going to morph into something a little more significant and consequentially now we're talking about the consequences her future husband will be a very appreciative that we took the time with this three-year-old uh, to identify what she did as murder james says you desire and do not have so you murder in four two James did not trim anger down to its most innocuous form so that we could feel better about ourselves. He put sinful anger in one basket, a murderous one. Suppose we reduce sin to acceptable behavior. In that case, we're well on our way to becoming okay with it while never recognizing how detrimental it is or how it can morph 
and escalate into other iterations three decades from that three-year-old huffing under the breath. One of the most vital keys to understanding our anger and reacting redemptively to it is to expand our categories of it. Beyond the scope of some of the most heinous forms of anger, some of which that I have mentioned already, anger has many more manifestations than you might imagine. Now, inside this article I have here, I have the anger spectrum, one of the more commonly used uh, infographics in our ministry at lifeovercoffee.com. As a matter of fact, if you go to the footer of any page on our website, you will see a link in the quick links. It's called shareables, and if you click on that link, it'll take you to the infographic bucket, and you can find this anger spectrum. I would encourage you to get it to stare at it for just a bit, maybe even print it off and circle some of the iterations that are most common to you, and then also share it with your friend. That one graphic would be an incredible conversation starter with with a friend. It would also be an awesome small group discussion. And so what I want to do here is I want to address the critical motivation that entices a person to yield to anger's temptation. Again, we can talk about the consequences of the different iterations later, but the point here is to get at our heart motivation, to nip it in the bud, to root it out at its source so that we are not so easily tempted by our hearts when when we see things that we do not like. And so, in a word, the sinful heart motivation is self-righteousness. That's the working word that you want to uh, think about, and that's what you want to address in your own life, especially if you struggle with patterns of anger, especially the low-level anger, those milder iterations that we can tend to excuse. And so when working with people who struggle with anger, sometimes what I will do is I will diagram their anger for them. I mean, a sketch, a picture, it's like sharing 1,000 words with them. And by the way, I have a second infographic in this article. You really want to read this article. And I would love for you to get this infographic and do similarly to the anger spectrum that I mentioned earlier. Benefit, stare at it, reflect upon it, share it with a friend, use it in small group. I'm going to try to reconstruct that graphic, that sketch for you uh, here uh, in the video and the podcast, but again, you really want to look at it. Now, in the graphic, what it has basically is that it has at the top rung, it has Christ and potentially you. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. And then at the bottom rung, at the very lower side of the page, there is uh, everybody totally depraved. And then there is a gap between uh, being in Christ and, and being in Adam. And so that's basically the graphic that you can look at. And what it does is that it illustrates Paul's thoughts about sin, total depravity at the bottom, and grace being in Christ at the top. When he was writing to his young protege, Timothy, this is what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'll just give you verses 15 and 16. He said that the saying is trustworthy, 
and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, here it is, of whom I am the foremost. And then he begins verse 16 by saying, but I received mercy. And so you see the juxtaposition, you see the stacking of a worldview. He saw himself as the foremost sinner at the bottom of the graphic, but he recognized that he received mercy. Now he is in Christ at the top of the infographic. He wanted Timothy to know how he thought about himself. The foremost sinner in the King James Bible, you might be familiar, it says the chief of sinners. He is numero uno. He is the chief of all the sinners. If you perceive yourself as the worst sinner in the room, it's not really easy to look down on others, which is the position of the self-righteous soul. You see, in order to be angry, you have to elevate yourself above the individual to look down on them to be sinfully angry at them. And again, if you view yourself as the worst sinner in the room, well, that is not a lofty, elevated position. That is the lowest rung on the ladder. And from Paul's perspective, no person was worse than how he viewed himself. Paul Paul saw himself as the foremost sinner who had received mercy. I'll get to that part in just a moment, but I want to wallow just a little bit, uh, make us a little bit uncomfortable. He was the worst of all the sinners who received the grace of God. Now, those two realities, his sinfulness and God's grace, were core anchor points in his theology of sanctification. He was the most prominent sinner in the room, regardless of who else was in the room with him. Now, that is a rational perspective when working through sinful anger problems, because without that view... You will be prey to anger's temptations because being angry means that you do not believe that you are the worst sinner you know. If you get angry with someone, you have elevated yourself above them, meaning you are better than they are and you are not the chief of sinners anymore if you ever held to that view at all. And so from that heart condition, we begin elevating it from a heart condition of self-righteousness. We begin elevating ourselves above those who annoy us. This better than, greater than posture of the heart makes us easy prey for the allurements of anger as a way to put that unworthy person in their place. This posture is what the self-righteous person does. Maybe you remember 1811 from Luke. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The problem with self-elevation is that no rational person can elevate themselves to a place of superiority over another. Thus, you hear the word irrational for the person who becomes sinfully angry. There are no degrees, there's no gradations, there's no levels of righteousness among totally depraved people. I mean, at the bottom rung of the ladder, here we are hanging out, totally depraved, completely lost, futile in our thinking. It is bums talking to bums about their bummery. I mean, no bum is better than another bum. And there are only two levels of individuals. You're either in Christ at 
the very top rung, or you're a dirty, low-down, rotten sinner. Listen to Paul in Romans 3.10 and 11 and 12. I call this the four Catholic nuns. Catholic means universal nuns, N-O-N-E-S. These are universal nuns, the four Catholic nuns. None is righteous, no, not one. None understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. They have become worthless. Worthless. None does good. No, not even one. And if you read that in the King James Bible, you will see those four Catholic universal nuns. Self-righteousness is a spiritual conundrum that shuts out the soul from receiving the grace of the Lord that he freely gives to the humble heart. You see, the angry person defies grace. He doesn't need the alien righteousness of Christ because he has his own self-righteousness, which keeps him from grace because Christ did not come for people like that the self-generated righteous soul. Christ came for sinners. It is only by recognizing that you're totally depraved that you open yourself up to grace to where you can be elevated by the power of God to a place of uh, alien righteousness in Christ at the top rung of that infographic. The self-righteous man is making a loud declaration that he does not need Christ's righteousness because he has his own. I want to share with you eight non-exhaustive things that come from the heart of the angry, self-righteous person. And what I mean by non-exhaustive is you can add uh, to this list. And I would encourage you to add to this list, but just to give you an idea of some of the things that a self-righteous person will say when they are being sinfully angry. I'm right, you're wrong. You're ridiculous. You don't have a clue. You're an idiot. Number five. When will you ever learn? Why can't you get it? Seven, I can't believe you did that. And then finally, you're such an embarrassment to me. All of those are angry expressions from the self-righteous heart who has elevated themselves above the person that they're angry at. And I'm sure you can add to this list either declarations that you have made or those that you have experienced from the self-righteous, angry person. But these statements have one common theme. I am better than you are. This attitude is full of gospel amnesia. This person forgets who he was before Christ saved him, assuming that Christ did save him at all. Maybe he is not a Christian. Maybe he is not operating in grace. Maybe he is still down here at the totally depraved rung. But he has yielded to the temptation to think he is somebody apart from Christ's work on his behalf. It is raw self-righteousness. On the other hand, an undeserving beggar understands his position before Christ. His sober self-assessment demotivates him from sinfully looking down on others. He just can't rise above another person to yell at them. The unworthy beggar does not discriminate because he views himself as the foremost sinner. How could he think otherwise? 
He's a beggar in need of grace, not a person who feels he deserves better while demanding it from others through sinful, manipulative anger. It kind of sounds like you may remember the story in Matthew 18. I'll share a snippet of it with you, verses 32 and 33. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so here is a man who had forgotten that God had forgiven him, or the master in this case had forgiven him. And he goes out and sees someone and begins beating the hoodah out of them. And the master comes along and says, you have gospel amnesia. Don't you realize that I've forgiven you all of that debt and you are beating him up for such a minuscule debt? Why can't you have mercy on him as I had mercy on you? And that's the gospel amnesia that's in operation here. Once we forget the gospel that God has had mercy on us, we will forget to have mercy on others. The self-righteous person has forgotten the gap. The distance between where he was as the foremost sinner and where Christ lifted him out of that pit of sin to where he is now, seated with Christ in heavenly places. That is a wide gap. That's why I said earlier, these are the two anchor points in Paul's progressive sanctification. He had a wide gap, the foremost sinner, but God has shown mercy. To live between those two anchor points To elevate yourself out of the pit of sin over another person is to appoint oneself righteous. That's an easy trap, which is the worldview of the Pharisee. The Pharisees would not embrace the gospel as the means to righteousness. They had their own righteousness. They forgot what Isaiah had told them about even their good works being filthy. They believed they deserved better, which they could self-generate. They made sinful demands on others as though they were different from them. Those were the Pharisees. But that is what anger does. And once we jump on the I deserve better road, I am better road, we're not far from amped up soul noise that creates relational tensions. The hard truth is is that we don't deserve better. We deserve hell. And if we happen to have something better by God's incredible mercy, we spend our days counting our blessings rather than making sinful demands on those that we think are inferior to us. We cannot get caught up in the the gap between who you were outside of Christ and who you are in Christ. We We want to remember those two anchor points and not get in this middle space where the Pharisees were. They rejected Christ's righteousness, and then they created their own righteousness as they elevated themselves, living inside this middle space, this gap. Everybody is the same outside of Christ, bad to the bone. No person is better than the next. You, me, the president, your pastor, Adolf Hitler, Billy Graham, we're all the same outside of Christ. There is none righteous. Zero. None. There is only one thing that makes any difference in us, and that is God imposing his transformative gospel into our lives, which is the process of becoming like Christ. Outside of the unmerited gift of the gospel, we're all rubbish 
as Paul said in Philippians 3, 3a. Paul never forgot this truth, which is why he could love and care for so many painful people. Read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, Paul could love painful people because he knew he was the foremost sinner. It is it's astonishing. It's extraordinary grace. He didn't create a man-centered gap between him and them. He owned the reality of who he was before God saved him and rejoiced in the undeserved mercy that God bestowed upon him. For by grace he was saved. And that one truth will keep us thinking rightly and responding rightly to everyone in our lives. It will keep us humble, which is the one heart condition that sets us up to receive more grace as James continued to talk about anger, he got down to James 4, 6, that God gives more grace to the humble. The culture teaches that, we, that the pathway to success begins with having a proper self-estimation of ourselves, which means thinking we're better than we are. Thus, when they hear, you are the biggest sinner in the room, as the pathway to success, they recoil and rage at such nonsensical teaching, and they say it's damaging to our self-esteem. You're already esteeming yourself through the roof. Now, assuming that you have been born again, you do not have to stay in the worst sinner category. And that's what they don't understand. There are two anchor points, not just a sin-centered, wallowing anchor point that keeps you in the mire of sin. You must continue along with Paul's thought progression. God showed mercy to you, assuming that you are a Christian. You're not that person any longer. You have been born from above. Acknowledging the horribleness of your soul condition is not a sin-centered wallowing in earthly mire for the forgiven soul. Paul reminded us at the end of his life in one of his last letters that he was the worst sinner he knew, and we know that he wasn't wallowing. He never forgot where he came from as a sinner man, even to the end. Our culture struggles with this notion. They promote thinking boastfully about themselves, demanding respect and rights at every turn. Paul had a comprehensive, self-aware, and honest view of himself that did not apologize or disguise all that he was and all that he will be. Your most effective positive mental attitude is to never forget that you were a worthless sinner saved by the grace of God, eternally in the hands of Jesus, who will always be for you and will return to take you with him. Do, do you want to forget where you were, what happened to you, where you are now, and where you are going? Remembering those four truths will give you the most positive mental attitude you could ever have while compelling you to walk in humility among your community as you give them the same hope and the same help that Christ gave you. Being too sin-centered leads to despair, no doubt. 
Being too grace-centered leads to deception. You can forget the reality of who you are. Being gospel-centered leads to humility and personal relational wholeness. You see, we're not entirely sanctified. We're We're not quite perfect yet. Though the Lord has broken the power of sin and we do, we do, do not have to sin, we do continue choose to sin on occasion. None of us have transformed into sinless perfection yet, or at least I haven't, which is why it's essential to never forget where you were before God found you. It is not unhealthy and it's not unwise to rehearse the daily fourfold comprehensive nature of the gospel. Unrighteous is what we were. Regenerated is what happened to us. In Christ is where we are today. Heaven is our future home. Paul eagerly reminded himself of who he was before God, regenerated him because he was also aware that he was guiltless before God, as you can read in 1 Corinthians 1. 8 and 9. Sin had no power or persuasion over him. He had been set free. His freedom released him from thinking about his former life and how he was in bondage to sin. One way that stirred humility and gratitude in his soul. The person bothered by his past has not been set free from his past. Paul experienced the neutralization of sin in his life to the point that it was not a big deal to talk about it. It's analogous to moving from an apartment that you used to live in to a larger home. You rejoice all the more as you remind yourself of where you used to live. The new homeowner is not sad about where he used to live, but he is motivated to express gratitude because of where he is today. I've titled this Diagramming the Heart of the Angry Person. I want to wrap up by by asking some questions, and let me begin this way. Your love for Christ and others will be in proportion to the width of the gap. The more extensive the gap, the greater your affection will be for others. The person who realizes the magnitude of his forgiveness loves much. You see that in Luke 7.47. Your temptation towards self-righteous anger will go away as you as you widen the gap. Here's the story in 747. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Paul did not want to forget that he was the biggest sinner in the room. And he loved much because he recognized he was forgiven a bunch. So here's some questions for you. Number one, are you able to diagnose your heart as it pertains to sinful anger? Number two, would you describe your level of gratitude for God's mercy to you? This is something that I look for when I'm helping people. I want to know the level of gratitude that they have, because if they have little gratitude, then they really are not understanding the gospel the way that they should. Number three, do you focus more on your sin, on God's grace, or the gospel? You remember what I said earlier? 
If you're sin-centered, it leads to despair. If you're grace-centered, it will lead to deception. If you're gospel-centered, it will lead to internal and relational uh, wholeness. Number four, what are the dangers of too much focus on sin or grace? Number five, according to what I've said here, what does it mean to be gospel-centered in your thought life? I want to tease those out a little more, and that's why I'm asking extra questions, because you really do need to get your mind around this. And then finally, number six, how do you need to change? And then whatever those changes are, would you share those changes with a friend? And so if you want to read what I just shared with you, go to lifeovercoffee.com. Look for Diagramming the Heart of the Angry Person. There's two infographics embedded there. If you happen to be a supporting member of our ministry and want to talk to me about this, uh, then you can go to our supporting forum. I don't a uh, forum, private forum, just for supporting members. Regrettably, I just don't have the time to engage anybody on social media, so I don't, I can't, I have to create these resources. I do leadership development here in our community, uh, particularly in our Mastermind program. But if you would like to interact with us, please become a supporting member. Otherwise, enjoy the resources and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.